Welcome, Harvest Church family, and thank you for joining us this week for our sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged with the message prepared. And don't forget, if you enjoy taking notes, you can download the fillable PDF file on our website at goharvest.org forward slash notes. Right now, let's listen in to this week's message. Amen. Good to see everybody here. We all know that the second service is filled with the most spiritual people uh, come to service to you've been in prayer since about 5.30 this morning and then just spent four or five hours with the Lord, then church. I know what, I know that's what you have been doing. I, the early service thinks you were in bed, but I, I, I believe you were in prayer for the service. So give yourself an applause. Second service folks are the most spiritual people in America. You guys, just as you come back to the gathering, this congregation, I didn't share this in the first service, but you know, pastors like Pastor Perry, who are, I would consider an elite pastor in this nation, um, not in a sense, he's not an elitist, but in my estimation, those around him, Pastor Perry and Barb are elite leaders uh, in America, how they have built a spiritual congregation. And I just am so, so blessed. The prayer for for Hannah touched my heart because, you know, this church has always been at the tip of the spear as a sending agency. We, and I, I believe that we have not heard the last of, of Hannah. That girl can lead some praise and worship. So, so beautiful, so beautiful. But that's always been kind of the reputation of this congregation. How many of you ever heard of uh, Convoy of Hope, the great uh, compassion uh, leadership uh, response with food to crises around America, seeing the huge trucks, Convoy of Hope. Just so you remember correctly, back in the uh, mid-90s, late-90s, we acquired this building. It was a bowling alley. This was lane. There was 28 lanes. This is lane 14 right here. I bowled down this lane. And uh, right over here to the left, there was a John Deere tractor uh, kind of outlet right in this little mall right here, this little shopping uh, center that's been there for a long time. And it was kind of abandoned and really kind of not as nice as it is today with the overpass. But there was a little warehouse right there that Buzz Oates, the person who gave us this opportunity for this building and all of these 23 acres here, he had right there empty. And he said, hey, for a thousand bucks a month, I can give this to you. We didn't know what we would do with it. And so it had a little forklift in there, a little freezer in there. And it was about 10,000 or no, but maybe it was about 1,500 or 2,000 square feet. And so my friend Hal Donaldson here in Northern California was feeding called through a thing called Compassion Care or Rural Church Network. On Saturdays, they would bring food down from senior gleaners and pickup trucks would come from around the mountains here from small communities, load up their pickup truck full of food and take it back. Well, the food had to be gathered on Saturday, delivered on Saturday, and they had no place to put the food. And I was talking to them one day and I said, hey, we got this little warehouse here. So this building right here became the very first ever, it switched to Convoy of Hope, became the first food warehouse right here to the left of this building and we stored food in there, put it in the freezer and then uh, we would collect it. Then it just blossomed. More people would come on Saturdays to pick up food to take back to their communities. And that was the genesis of Convoy of Hope, friends, is right through that little building right there. I remember back when the Soviet Union opened up in the early 90s, there was this moment to mobilize as quick as possible. We did in about four weeks, mobilize a team that went to 
uh, the USSR, uh, and you got to remember for the, those of us old enough how crazy this was to get into the Soviet Union. We took the first Bibles, a team from Harvest Church took the first Bibles uh, that was into Kiev um, in that major city was a group of people from this church uh, that mobilized in four weeks. I'll never forget, there was a guy that had this dream in Miami to start something called Peacemakers. Uh, his name was Rich Wilkerson, and him and his family were moving to Miami to start peacemakers and to uh, be the pastor of Trinity Church. And out of there has come his son's church, Vu Church, which is tens of, just thousands of people. Harvest Church, we had an extra 25,000 bucks in 1995, believe it or not. We said, you know, what do we do with this money? So we gave it all for him to go start peacemakers, which now has touched the world. This little church back in the day and this mighty church in this day and age has been this fire starter of opportunity in ministry. And I could really spend all of my half hour telling you story after story. So when I see Hannah being prayed for, uh, I just know that we've not heard the last. When this thing is fully realized, it's going to be a very, very powerful story. But I'm just so grateful for the faith, the leadership, and the life of this great church and your great pastors. Can we tell Perry and Barb again how much we love them? And just, they're just the best. They're the best. Look at that. That's impressive, man. They put up the convoy of hope right there. And uh, every time you drive past that little warehouse right over here, I want you to think about what God did through this congregation uh, back in the 1990s. Amen. We're going to turn our hearts to first or Second Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. But as you begin to gather again and begin to fill in these empty seats, I want you to know that the church is strong, but we've all been in the same ship, like the Apostle Paul on the way to Rome which I have often referred to as this fourth missionary journey, is in that boat was Jews and Romans, there was centurions, there were uh, slaves, there were prisoners, and everybody found themselves on the same ship battling the same storm. And that has been our world this last year and a half. Everybody's been in the same boat. We're all walking through the same storm, the Christian and the non-Christian alike. But it was... The person in the bottom of that boat, in the depth of that storm, that found intimacy with the Lord, the Apostle Paul, had an encounter with that angel. He became the captain of the ship. And I think even though we've all walked through the same storm, it's not about just being survivors and getting through the storm. It's who are going, who's going to be the leaders. I don't mean notoriety and fame and money. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that can provide the way forward and articulate the ways of God and the plan of God through this thing that we've just walked through. One of my friends is the worship leader at Hope City in Houston. The Sunday that they last met before COVID when I was here a little over a year ago in March, and I think I was part of the last normal service uh, back in March, you gave us $100,000 for our university and for a big project going on at North Central. And after that, the world kind of began to collapse and take a different turn. But I remember on that day, I think every church in America was probably, the strong ones were at the zenith. This was the 30-year anniversary of the church. It was unbelievable in this place. It's jam-packed service after service. I have a friend that was pastoring in Houston. He said he had 16,000 people that Sunday before COVID hit. They've been open now for three months full on in Houston and they have 4,000 people coming, which is huge, but there's 12,000 missing people. 
12,000 people in that one church. And you can extrapolate the numbers into any size, any congregation. And everybody is doing a reset right now as far as what really is there in this congregation. And pastors are going, man, it took me 20 years to build the congregation to that size. And it's like, it's evaporated. Where, where are the people? The giving, you know, and all the supplemental income has been good. But churches have a big decision they have to make. Pastors, leaders, college presidents, we're down 100 students. It's about a $4 million operational loss this year. And we were arcing toward our best attendance in 12 years at the university. It might take us three years. Colleges don't grow like churches. To find 100 freshmen again in that class and to build from there could take three, four, five years um, to build that back. All I'm saying is this. You that are sitting here, it's like we're all finding each other after we've been exiled. We're all kind of coming out from exile. Here we are. We're seeing each other again. But we've got to make, we have to have a determined heart that we are going to love the Lord and love his church, love his ways, love his people, love our communities. And people are not going to come back because of big event. They're going to come back because their neighbor has shared Christ with them. And it's back on you and it's back on me to share my faith with people one-on-one, neighbor to neighbor. We're not just going to have a beautiful facility and a big sign and everybody just going to come flooding back because they moved to town and want to find a great church. That ship has sailed. We've got to be more empowered by the Holy Spirit to share our faith and to get deeply engaged with the people we work with and not leave it up to architecture and to advertising. Uh, to build the church. It's not going to happen that way. And I believe you're up to the task. Um, But I'm so grateful you are here. I'm so grateful that you're diving back in, being a part of what God is doing in a new day and a new thing. Somebody say amen. So today, before we get into the word, I just want to relate. I have a brand new book. It just came out on Friday. I got my hand on this on Friday for the first time. I was asked about six months ago to participate in a wonderful new uh, book for first responders by Tyndale House, and they have put together this absolutely gorgeous, it's like a time life book that is filled with some of the most beautiful photography, like this weeping African-American police officer with a tear coming down his cheek. Every page is like this. This book is a gift book for police officers, firefighters, nurses, people that work in hospice care, people that work um, helping distribute food. It's called On Call Heroes, and it's, it's designed as a big thank you to those living on the front lines. So first of all, if you're in here and you're a frontline worker, professionally or maybe as a volunteer or maybe just fate pushed you into a, a space to help someone along the way like the Good Samaritan. This is heaven's applause for you. There's really no book in the market like this. This will be out in about three weeks in all the Hobby Lobbies and Targets and Walmarts around the country. Um, but you're the first ones to see it. It just came Friday. I got some early editions. Um, but it is a, a wonderful book. It will inspire your own heart. The sayings, the short stories, I had the privilege of writing those uh, to combine with some beautiful, beautiful photography. So here's how this works. One, it's a great gift to give yourself. But also, if you know of a nurse, a police officer, a firefighter, someone that's in the military, someone that's a school teacher, somebody that is serving the world around them behind the scenes, and they've had a tough, tough year, I want you to buy some copies of this 
and give it to them as a gift. Maybe a card could be included. And it's a great, great outreach to police officers and school teachers and firefighters. Can we just thank the Lord for all of our first responders in Elk Grove? Can you thank them right now? So you can go by the table out there and uh, Karen will be out there as well as myself. In 2 Kings chapter 8, let's go. Here we go. Brought my little Bible. I'm telling you, I'm having a, a feud with PowerPoint. So I, I told PowerPoint, uh, they're not going to be with me. This is my second Sunday to preach with no PowerPoint. Can you imagine? It's 1998 all over again. Let's go before we had, and then I don't, but that is an impressive screen, Perry. Very impressive. But today I'm just going to preach from the Bible here. The notes in the scripture won't be on this screen. Hopefully you brought your Bible. Here we go. Second Kings chapter eight. <clears throat> the Bible says Elisha had told the woman whose son he had brought back to life, take your family and go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. For the Lord has called for a famine of Israel that will last for seven years. So she took her family and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. After the famine ended, she returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to see the king about getting her house and her land. And as she came in, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. The king had just said, tell me some stories about the great things Elisha has done. And Gehazi was telling the king about the time Elisha had brought a boy back to life. At that very moment, the mother of the boy walked in to make her appeal to the king about her house and her land. She walked into her own story after years? How weird is this? She walks in and this guy's telling her story to the king. Look, my lord, Gehazi says. Here is the woman now, and this is the son, and the very one Elisha brought back to life. Is this true, the king says? And she told him the whole story. I'll tell you what happens next in just a moment. <clears throat> so to frame this in chapter 8 of 2 Kings, you have to understand 2 Kings chapter 4. And I actually preached... I think the 20th anniversary, 11 years ago, I preached the story of 2 Kings chapter 4. So I'm not quite sure you can remember what I shared 11 years ago, but I want to frame chapter 8 by reminding you of something in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is famous because Elisha stays in this little apartment that's been designed by this wealthy woman of Shunem who wanted to show kindness to the traveling itinerant ministers of Israel, the prophets, so she built this little cool apartment complex or apartment uh, room. And Elisha and Gehazi are lodged in this place. They come down in the morning. They're very grateful for what this woman and her husband have done. They want something kind for her. So Elisha has Gehazi, his assistant, find out if she needs any money. And they come to find out she's wealthy, doesn't need any money. Then they find out she has no kids. And Elisha, feeling confident with his cup of coffee, very prophetic early in the morning, says, by this time next year you shall bear a son. Names the gender and the timing of this child that will be born to a woman who's never had a child and she's older. Back in chapter 4, the Bible says that the woman exclaimed, said, no, my Lord, no. 
Now, why would a woman who never had a child that wanted a child deck the idea of having a child? Because she had reconciled that disappointment, that part of her broken heart, she had reconciled that between her and God. She loved God. She could never really explain why God did for everybody else what he would not do for her. We all have that. We all have a box in our attic marked broken heart or, or, or broken dreams. It's filled with shattered glass. It's something in my life and yours that God seemed to do for everybody but me. It's a part of my life that I'll never understand until I get to heaven. It's a loss. It's an illness. It's a divorce. It's a death. It's a bankruptcy. It's something that did not unfold. And you have reconciled it, stored it away, and you don't appreciate it when people go into that space and talk about it. No, my Lord, I don't need a kid. Me and God are cool. He did it for everybody else, didn't do it for me. They had a lifelong marriage. My spouse died or I was abandoned or this or that. Okay, Lord, I love you. I can't figure out why my life took this turn, though. But it's cool. Don't go there. So, lo and behold, she gets pregnant. She has a kid. The kid grows up maybe six or seven years of age. We're speculating. But the Bible says that one day that little boy left mama's apron and ran out to the field to play with the, see the dad. The Bible says in chapter four of 2 Kings that the little boy cried out, my head, my head. And he falls down in the Bible specific. He dies. You can read it in chapter four. They take the dead boy and they put it on the lap of the mother. She then transfers the trauma and the crisis of faith to the person who started this whole mess named Elisha. She takes the dead boy and puts him in Elisha's bed because he's staying with her again, apparently, in the prophet's quarters. She then runs out to the field, and she looks at Elisha, and she says, did I not tell you? You think I just wanted to get pregnant, cut the umbilical cord, nurse, raise a little guy, and then have him die? I wanted a man. I wanted a warrior. It would have been better to have never been pregnant than to have another part of my dream dashed like this. It was all safe in the attic. Why did we go inside that space and create more disappointment and pain? I wanted a son. I wanted a warrior. I just didn't want to have a baby. Now look where I'm at. It's better we never win. Why does God have the power to start stuff but not the power to finish it? Why does God give us the faith to believe for things that start and then it falls apart and disappears? There's thousands of us sitting in churches with that same question mark at this stage of our life. So she puts the, the, the boy in Elisha's bed. He goes in the room, chapter 4 again, and he lays on that kid and prays, and the Bible says the body grew warm. And he jumps up because it was cold, now it was warm, and he's going to run outside and declare that a revival has broke out. But he looks back at the boy, and the Bible says he went back and forth in the room. He's probably looking at the kid. He's warm, got a pulse, but he's not alive. He's just warm. And he's thinking, really, God, is this all you get when you pray? Is somehow, God, you turn a corpse into a coma? That's it? That's the life of faith and power? We get a little pulse? There's a lot of people 
that have come out of the pandemic and their churches are like a corpse and they got a little warmth now. They got a little pulse and they, they feel good about themselves that they've gone from a corpse to a coma just because we got a little warmth in the church because the church on the street is dead as a whatever, cold. But we have a little pulse. But Elisha says, this cannot be why God has put us on this earth in, in a New Testament context. This can't be why the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, simply to make us a, a coma. So he lays and prays again, and now the kid jerks to life. His eyes open up. He sneezes seven times. Because sometimes, church, it takes more than one swing. It takes more than one prayer meeting. It takes more than one shot. You got to lay, stay, and pray. You got to keep praying. You got to keep opening up the altar. You got to keep believing. You got to keep worshiping. You got to stay after it. You got to lay, stay, and pray until resurrection comes. And not just give up because the corpse became a coma and you're happy with that. So the kid's alive. Chapter 8. Elisha told the woman whose son he'd raised back to life. Hey, go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. Let me ask you a question, church. What if God was so intimately engaged in your life that early on in your life, he was doing headline miracles in your life? He raised from the dead. But now it's a few years down the road and all the Lord is telling you to do is, hey man, go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. It's tough. You know, when, when, when you're around death like we have in 2020, and it was a tough year. My mom passed just a couple months ago. Perry's mom passed last year. I, I've had a lot of people that have gone through a lot of difficult stuff with the passing. It was my second parent to go. Fortunately, this time, we had a chance to say goodbye to mom there with an open casket. And it was very powerful and very beautiful, all of that. But my, my dad passed back in 2004. And mom, it, our family, I don't know if your family's like this, but our family, we always have a tough time with our goodbyes. We don't do them real well. True story, my dad passed away in 04. We were in Michigan. And we're having the, the funeral there at the church I was pastoring. And we decided as a family that, I, you know, when you're the pastor preacher of the family, you're kind of the family pope. You know, people kind of, when things are going, you're the pope. So you kind of help guide the family and said, well, we'll do an open casket in the lobby. We'll say goodbye to dad. Everybody will be in the auditorium. And then we'll, we'll bring the casket down closed and he'll be in a closed casket. But we'll do all of our goodbyes out in the lobby. You know, there's no rules for this stuff. You just kind of figure it out. So we're out there with my dad. And my dad, he was only 66 when he passed away, had been very sick. But it was, it was a sad time. We're all gathered around the casket. The casket's open. And the last thing we're going to do is say goodbye. So we're leaning over the casket. Hey, Dad, we love you. We love you. Love you, Dad. We just love you. Love you, Pop. And so the funeral director looked at me. And he's kind of like, is it time to close the, the casket lid? And I'm going, I finally look around. I go, yeah, close it, close it, close it. 
So he starts slowly cranking this wheel and the lid starts coming down. And if you had filmed our family, we're all kind of like this. And we're all kind of bending like this with the lid. And uh, we're all going, bye, dad. Bye, dad. Bye, pops. We love you, pops. Goodbye, dad. Goodbye, dad. And we're all bent over like this. And the lid closes. And he's, we'll see you in heaven, dad. Bye. And we're like this. We all kind of slowly stand up. But the... The funeral director, he was still bent over. And he, he realizes his tie is in the lid of the casket. It's locked in his tie and he can't get it out. And so he's looking at me and he goes, I gotta open it up again. I, and to open up the lid, you have to go slowly all the way back up. And it's, it's not just a little bit and slide it out. So we're like, bye, Dad, see you in heaven. Like, oh, hello, Dad. Good to see you again, Pops. <laughs> Our family has never been good at this stuff. <laughs> this last year when Mom passed, very tough. More traditional, but... We still chuckle when they, when we were done, we were asking the funeral director, please tuck your tie in your suit. <laughs> we have a track record here. <laughs> when you pass through death and life and all these stories, like we have this last year and a half, it takes its toll on us. And for many people, it has deteriorated their faith. It's not developed their faith. I want you to put your self in the shoes of this woman. She was so close to God's agenda that God raised her kid from the dead after breaking a spirit of barrenness on her life. Miracle, and then another miracle to top that miracle. And now the word of the Lord to her is, hey, can you go sojourn wherever you can sojourn? Can you kind of go figure it out? Go get lost for seven years. I got other important stuff. Hey, just go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. And the word of the Hebrew means literally become an immigrant, become detached without root. You just are a wanderer. Can you kind of go get lost for seven years? And, you know, as a parent, I understand this. We used to practice this as parents. When we were living in Michigan, our kids were teenagers, and we would say, hey, man, Kids, mom and I need a day. Here's 20 bucks. We're going to take you to the mall about 8 o'clock in the morning. Here's 20 bucks. We'll pick you up about 11 o'clock at night. Here's enough money for the food court and a movie. Can you go sojourn wherever you can sojourn? <laughs> we need a day off. So the kids would wander around the mall for a day sojourning. The Bible says that she returned after seven years. Here's my question to the woman. What have you been doing? What have you been doing for seven years? Seven prime years of her adult life. In the heart of her productivity, can you just go walk around for seven years and go sojourn wherever you can sojourn? Try reconciling the hand of God. Your life early on was involved in miracles and visions fruitfulness, power, meaning, and then poof. You lose 10 years, prime years of your adult life. And she goes, I got seven years and I got nothing to show for it. I know there are those sitting in this room today. You're 53, 
When you were 40, man, you were full of vision, life, and faith, and something happened, a death, a loss, an abandonment. Something happened. And now you're 50-something going like, what was that all about? I got nothing to show for the last 10 prime years of my adult life, and I got nothing to show for this. And then you're haunted by the idea that God was so involved in your life that he raised your son from the dead. Then he's so unplugged from your life that he just says, go, I don't know, go figure it out for a while. Just go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. It's a tough space for a believer. Maybe we're coming out of not just a year and a half of sojourning as a country, as, a, as pastors, as college presidents, fathers, husbands, wives, grandparents. I'll never forget they did let us see my mom for the first time in 10 months. Just a couple months before she died, we had a chance to go to Washington. It was the first time the four kids had all been together in the same space. The musicians can come and join me on the platform. So you're going to feel hope here now, folks. When you see the musicians, you feel hope. Like, okay, good. He's not going to preach all day. Got to see my mom, but we had all these protocols. We were across the table. Hadn't seen her in 10 months. She has dementia. She comes out. She's lurching for us, and we're recoiling from our mother. Can you imagine pulling back from your mom? She's confused. FaceTimed didn't suffice the soul. She's trying to reach across our hands. We're across the table. She got within about six inches, and I'm pulling my hand back from my mom, the earthly savior of my life. And we're sitting there. She's confused. We cry for 30 minutes. We only had 30 minutes of four kids. We each took turns. We're crying. She's crying. Mama, we're so sorry. This virus will be done soon. We're going to be able to see each other, be each other. We're going to hold you, Mama. We're going to hug you, Mama. And she goes, why? Where have you been? And she's reaching and she's trying to grab us and we're pulling back from Mom. We're glad to see her. We're glad for whatever little morsel of human rationing we were allowed. But man, was it awful. The nurse is crying. It's the end of the day and she says, she say, basically says, I can't take this. She said, if you'll listen to me, because at this point I told my brother, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cock the nurse. I'm going to hit her. I'm going to knock her out. We're going to drag her body behind the brush. <laughs> and we're going to put mother in the car. We're going to Starbucks with mom. I'll knock her out, drag mom out. This whole thing's made us crazy, folks. And the nurse says, if you will listen to me carefully and do what I tell you, I have a way for you to hold your mom. Huh? So she came out in these surgical robes. She came out with these special coverings for our hands and our feet and our hair. And once we methodically clothed ourselves in the robe and we were fully covered. <clears throat> the agony of the chasm, <clears throat> the chasm, the agony of the chasm caused us for 30 minutes to cry our eyes out. But now we were clothed in these robes and we were adorned in these gloves. 
And once we followed the instruction of the nurse and did not try to do it another way, she said, you can hold your mother now. And for the first time in 10 months, and I should have had the picture here, I have a photo of not me holding my mom, but my mom holding me. And her nails just going into my back and we're weeping. And for the first time in my life, I understood salvation. I've had kids, been married. The greatest day of my entire life was my mother holding me this last fall. Because for the first time in my life, I realized that the only way to mitigate the chasm was to be robed and covered. And for the first time, I understood the righteousness of Christ's robe and the covering in the blood of Jesus and not coming in by a different way. And when I was clothed and when I was covered, the chasm was removed and there was salvation. And for the first time, I understood what my confession of Christ actually means. Up until this time, this terrible space and rationing and closeting of one another, that by God's grace, we're coming out of that exile into a new season of authority and power. And part of that is you being in this building today. Let's bring this to a close. This woman, she comes back after seven years of sojourning. Nothing to show for these prime years of her adult life. All she wants is a do-over. Can I just get my dirt back? Can I just get my old shack? I don't care if it's bent over like an old farm barn. I just want a do-over. Can I just go back in time? And I can't get these seven years, but just, man, can I just have a do-over? And she walks into her story. What does that tell us? This is a real-life narrative that gives us a very profound spiritual reality, and that is this. Your life, my life, no matter what it feels like or what we think is going on, when I love the Lord, my life is never outside the throne of the King. My story is being prayed for, told, reminded, advocated for, before the throne of the king, even if I feel like I just wasted seven years of my adult life. I am in the presence of the king. Somebody is telling my story through prayer, through advocacy, Jesus. I am in the presence of the king. She walks into her own story. She says, can I have a do-over? They can't believe it. Gehazi I can't believe it. The king can't believe it. This woman with nothing to show. Because here's what the final verse says. This changed everything in my life when I thought of restoration. The power of restoration. I thought restoration simply meant God was going to give me a second chance. God was going to give me a do-over. By his mercy, I get a do-over. I get another chance at life. She walked in and said, this is true. The king then turns to his official and says, give her everything that she has lost. Restore to her also the value and the produce of any crops that have been harvested from the time she left to the time of her return. 
all seven years of productivity, when she thought she was sojourning out here in no person's land, wasting the prime years of her life, the produce of the field, the yield of the field was being developed and it was being stored. And after seven years, the king says, give her back her land and her house and give her back, back all the productivity of her field from the day she left to the day she returned. All of that was given back to her, the yield as well, as well as the field, church. This completely changed the way. I don't know how God does this. I don't know how he performs this miracle, but when God restores in your life, I want you to know that even while you're sojourning out there, there are no lost years when you love the Lord. When you love God, there are no lost years. <laughs> to the sojourner in this room, seven years or 17 years, I don't know what the math is in your case. You are faithful, you love the Lord, you go away for seven years and you return, and you feel like you got nothing to show for this. I want you to know that God is doing things off our radar, out of our view, and he has his way of delivering the yield, not just the field for the faithful that love him while they're sojourning. I didn't know my son was gonna be here today because I told a story about him in the first service and him and his beautiful wife are here. I'll tell the story as I close here. Four kids. I told the story about Kramer. How many were at the men's conference? Kramer, what's this mean right here? Three, baby, three. I told the story where they thought I was throwing you gang signs across the gym. Told the story about you and I on the top bunk when you were just a tiny little fella, and we discovered we're both threes. Threes. I'm, I have a special connection with all of my kids, all of them equally, but maybe Crame and I have a, I don't know. Crame and I just, maybe because we're both threes in our family. But his three siblings had gotten married, started having kids, moving on in life. He's a very accomplished football player, Division I scholarship football player, two master's degrees. But love life wasn't working out. And career was not unfolding. He was past the midway point of his 20s. <clears throat> and I could see the millennial look in his eye. Hey, mom and pop, how's this thing going to fly here? What I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to do it with, it's not, it's not working out. My siblings are getting married, all of them. Kids are starting to show. I don't got even a person in my life right now trying to do it God's way, trying to hang on. But we have been around enough. We could hear that little twinge in our son's voice like, What's happening here? It's not working like the other ones. He didn't say it that way, but that's how we interpreted it. 
So one day, you know, we gave him a little pep talk, parental pep talk. It's going to be okay. God has the person. You know, I'm just faking it with by faith, trying to say stuff to him to keep his heart going. Karen and I are laying in bed going, oh, God Almighty, what are we going to do? How are we going to help Kramer, God? I got no solutions here. And your heart breaks as a parent. And you're like, man. Because not every one of your kids get married on the same day. You did know that. Not every one of your kids has their kids on the same day. There's always somebody arriving before you or someone that you're waiting on or that you're watching. So he was in that space. I would call it the sojourner space. Already in his 20s, kind of sojourning. Being faithful, loving God, but like... So one day I came home and there's his computer was open. I tell our kids, you know, hey, listen, as long as you're going to college or you're saving up for a wedding, you can live here. If not, get your can out of here. It's great parental advice. Now they've circled, some have circled home to live again because they're saving up for a house. But you got to have a purpose in this. You're not just going to hang out here. Can I hear an amen? amen. Oh, that's a pretty strong amen by the parents. I might have to come back for another message on that one. I got, I got to wrap this up. This thing's been long. Here we go. So one day I came home and there's a, his computer's there. He's at school or doing something. His computer's there. And I see a picture on the computer and it's a picture of a girl. But in front of the White House or the Capitol, I forget. And I show Karen, I go, hey, look at this. And she goes, that's a picture of the White House. I said, no, that's a picture of a girl, Karen. The White House is in the background, girl. That's a, that's a girl. She goes, that's the White House with the girl in front. I said, no, that's a girl with the White House in the back. That's what this is. <laughs> so he comes home, and I casually go, hey, son, bro. Saw that picture of the White House, hint, hint. Uh, or the, who's that girl? He goes, oh, Pops. Pops. He goes, I met a girl, and I gonna have coffee I don't know and and he goes dad she's got kind of a past I said okay he goes no dad a past I said son why do you think they call us pastors (laughs) oh you didn't know that I made it up on the spot and it's been it's unbelievable he goes really I go yeah I go god we help people with their past That's what we do. You didn't know that? That's why we're called pastors. We help people get over their past. (laughs) And so he tells me her story that she'd had a child when she was 16 and then got pregnant again at 19 and was coming to the Lord, back to the Lord, raised with a good family, walked through a situation, but had two kids and I'll give you the other half another day. So she had two children. So they fell in love, and within about a year, that love became a wedding day, and we stood on the state capitol. And I was very emotional because I'd watched my son go through this sojourning. Sojourn wherever you could sojourn. My life's falling behind. And then after the great I do's, I saw him stand there with his bride and his two sons. (laughs) 
And I realized on that day, I, I think you got the picture. I'll show you the picture. This is the photograph. If you can show it right there. Right there. And while the dude in the blue suit was thinking, hey man, my life just kind of spinning. Nothing's really producing. Little did he know that God was producing something in a field over here that a yield, something was being done over here that would be suddenly delivered to him on this beautiful day that he had would be the father of these two beautiful boys that God was preparing and growing. I don't know how he does it for you, how he'll do it for me, but I know that God will do it. Restore to her all the produce of the field from the day she left to the day that she returned. She didn't just get back her dirt and her broken down shack. Because when you love the Lord, there are no lost years, church. Somebody say amen. Let us stand together across this room. I want to pray for you before pastor comes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I will tell you this. I didn't say this in the first service. How many grandparents are in this room? The first time you're called grandpa. Now, Elias, the Tyler's little guy that was born, but he was born within a year, within a year of this marriage. So he, he ended up calling Karen Gaga. Gaga. Uh, and he turned to me and called me Kaka. And I said, no. That's, I took three years of Spanish in junior high. You're not calling Grandpa Kaka. I said, Karen, I don't care what it costs. Get a speech therapist. We're not, I don't care what the cost is. I don't want to hear Kaka come out of his mouth again. Looking at me. So it took Elias a few years to grow. But the oldest child in this picture, Eli, who's my number one, he's my oldest grandchild, Eli. We have 10. Two have been grafted into our family. Eli and Zachy. And like I said in the first service, they've been very busy. They've had two more. So we have eight of the children were biologically born. Two of our grandchildren were spiritually born. But the two oldest are the two that were spiritually born and grafted in. I will tell you this. It was about a month before the wedding. The kids were over at the house. Eli and Zachy are playing. And Eli came up with a book. And he said, Grandpa, can you read this to me? It was the first time on earth I'd ever been called grandpa by a, a child that God 
had gifted into us that we never knew was part of a field that was growing. I have a very special relationship with Eli. He was the first one to ever call me grandpa. And you hear it once, whoever called you that, they get first place. I slip that kid $5 bills every time I see him. I love him so much. I love what God has done. I don't know how he's going to restore things in your life. I don't know when the yield in the field will show up. But restoration is not a second chance, friends. It's not a do-over. When you love the Lord as a sojourner, there will be no lost years. All the productivity somehow, someway is going to be delivered to you. I want to pray for you if you feel like a sojourner today. Pastor is going to come and lead us in a call for those to know the Lord. Say, Pastor Scott, this word was for me today. I'll pray very quickly today, but put your hand up high. Say, man, I've been a sojourner, man. I felt like I got some prime years that were lost in my life. And I'm trying to reconcile all this and stay vibrant for the Lord. Father, I just pray that whatever accelerant, Lord, that 2020 and 2021 created uh, to the sojourning experience, in Jesus' name, we pray for a new mindset and a new miracle today, God, for men and women across this building, Jesus. Father, we pray, Lord, if you've done great miracles in our life, then it seemed like somebody pulled the plug and now it's just sojourning and without definition and kind of by ourselves. God. Lord, I pray as we are faithful to you, Jesus, and we return to the king, we go back to the king, we go back to the throne room, and we pray and we appeal, Lord, to give us what is ours, Lord, to the king, and we realize the king is in love with us and cares deeply and is going to do more and exceedingly and above that which we ask for. Lord, for every sojourner in this building, Jesus, I pray they would leave this room, God, with a strength and an authority, God, a joy that they have never known, Lord. And Lord, I don't know how it will happen, God, but you will bring a yield, not just the field. And Lord, we declare today and tell the devil, I love the Lord, and I don't care what the sojourning season has felt like. There are no lost years when I love God. In Jesus' mighty name. God bless you, church. It's a good day. How many are glad you came to the house of the Lord today? Hey, Get one of these resources for yourself, for people that have loved behind the scenes. Give it away as a gift to somebody. God bless you, Pastor Perry. Thank you for joining us once again for this week's sermon podcast. We pray God's blessing on you as you face your day and week ahead. For more videos, messages, and other content, make sure you follow, like, and subscribe to all of our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at GoHarvestEG. And be sure to check out our website at GoHarvest.org for the latest information on events and services. Until next time, stay encouraged and don't miss the opportunity to be a blessing to the world around you. God bless.